0: Hey losers, hop in my Plymouth Fury, we're going shopping. All the shitters of the world are going to be jealous because we are picking up the latest issue of Fangoria. That's right, one of the premier brands in horror. Fangoria has been delivering quality magazines since 1979, and each collectible issue features exclusive articles about your favorite monsters as well as up-and-coming terrors. Check it out because this magazine is sure to delight with fright and be sure to check out the Fangoria store website for subscriptions and a bunch of cool merch. While you're there, use promo code WOULDYOUDIESHOW for 20% off your entire order. That's right, 20% off your entire order. Applies to subscription and one-time orders. Applies to the first subscription order only. Now, let's uh, rev up our engines and blast some rock and roll. come
1: going to need a bigger boat. Be my victim. You are all my children now.
0: Hello, my name is Austin Torres and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I am joined once again by one of my favorite people. He's a prolific producer, special effects makeup artist, and film director who's worked on films like Bedtime Story, They Waited in the Dark, Alchemy of the Spirit, and I am Lisa. Please welcome my friend, Jake Jackson. Hey, Austin. I'm so excited that you're back on the show because you're so much... Uh, you're. The the episode we did where we just talked about trying to understand the monsters is still one of my favorite episodes I've done on the show. It was horrible to edit because we went so long, yeah. but it was <laughs> well, worth it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, I I really pre- I was really excited when you asked me to be on this show, and uh, because I had so much fun on the first time, uh, do it talking about the monsters and stuff like that. This one, luckily, we're a little bit more directed, uh, yes. so maybe we we'll off <laughs> into. The, all different facets uh, of the the world of uh monsters and and uh mayhem there's still going to be a bunch of tangents let's be real so (laughs) of course of course there are but at least we can go back to well let's go back to the subject
0: exactly exactly we got a road map for this one see i'm already starting with my puns but we are talking one of my favorite just all-time favorite movies. It's definitely a top five horror movie for me. It's my favorite John Carpenter film, and it's my favorite Stephen King adaptation. I really love this movie. You guys know what it
2: is. It's Christine. I just absolutely love Christine because it's it's a thematic that Carpenter always played around with, and I think it was a good meshing of the novel, and um, it, it is one of those movies that I find and feel is better than the novel itself the novel kind of goes into a lot more information about what is going on whereas i think yeah. carpenter with his thematic of you know evil never dies evil just changes shape which is definitely a thematic of most of his films some sometimes literally in the case of like the thing yes. and not um but also too in david gordon green's halloween trilogy i i really appreciate yeah. halloween ends which i know a lot of people really hated but i absolutely love because. We're already getting into it. <laughs> but again, it was just, and I, I, yeah. what I get is, is that the the character in that was very much similar to Arnie Cunningham in in Carpenter's yeah. film and in in the book, is that he is a naive kid who, you know, in this case, in you know in Christine's case, Arnie is uh, is bullied. His parents are overbearing. Mm-hmm. And he's looking for something that that will make him whole, and he finds it in the car. You know, and much like ends. Yeah. he's been accused by the society around him that he's the bad seed. Da da, da 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 And he happens upon Myers, and then starts whatever you want to read into it, feeding off the evil that Michael is and is slowly becoming him. But vice versa, they're both parasitic to one another, which is exactly what Christine is. Um, what what I always liked about it, the th- some of the things that you know. Viewers may not know about the book versus the movie is that in the book, when they buy the car from the guy, the guy is not the same guy from the book in the movie. Yeah. It's his brother. my Carrie he's he sits there and says, "My brother died in that car." In the book, it's actually the brother that died who sells him the car and then dies. And it's not so much the car that is possessing Arnie. It's the ghost of the brother. That's why he starts looking like a greaser by halfway through the movie right. Movie and in the book. Um, so that's just one of the things that I think Carpenter excising that and making it more about the element of evil can take any shape. In this case, the car. And it is implied that the car sort of possessed the previous owner the previous owners using that power to possess Arnie and and whatever. But um just the that idea of inanimate objects or or things that we obsess on, because a lot of people obsess over cars, kill oh, yeah. become visage, visages of evil. So that's what that's just one of the things that I always loved about Carpenter's adaptation of the film is that it took all the best elements of the book, took out stuff that didn't work for me, that would never have worked cinematically, but are still there. Because again, in the movie, Arnie starts dressing and doing his hair like a greaser from the fifties. Like he's still there, that element's still there, but Carpenter doesn't feel the need to go, oh, well, he's being possessed by the previous owner. It's just the car is parasitic to him. It's sucking his life force from him. There was just something about it. And it was an interesting movie for me, Carpenter's, you know, Christine, in that it was kind of a, transitional period for carpenter himself right because he had done everything up until that point had been more indie fair and i think he just come off of escape from new york well the one right before christine was actually the thing that was right that was right it was the thing because he had done the thing it was his first big studio film yeah and it was a huge bomb which is so funny everybody's like man it's such a classic you know it's right it aged well (laughs) and and i always love carpenter when everybody's like, what, how does it feel for this film to be so well-regarded? And he's like, I wish people would have shown up when I made it. Because yeah. It, it did almost, it did almost destroy his career because it was such a massive bomb.
0: Well,
1: I and don't,
2: then, you probably know this already, but he got fired from a job because of it. Yep. He was supposed yep. to do Firestarter. Yep. And which is why he jumped on to uh, Christine. Cause he did want to do a yeah. king adaptation, uh, which is ironic <laughs> that when they remade, remade Firestarter, which. I don't know. I think <laughs> gave them like twenty bucks to make a movie, but when they remade it, ironically, Carpenter and uh, his son and godson, who had composed the Halloween trilogy, came in and did the score for it. And the score is great. I, well, I really- that
0: I never had it. I never had a doubt in my mind. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Like uh, I, I'm,
2: I'm a, <laughs> yeah. they their Carpenter's music is so influential on on oh, me. Yeah. Speaking of, and going back to the Christine aspect of it, is like so many people miss out on the really great pristine theme that he created for yeah. with Alan Hallworth because it's it's it became more about the music that was played through the through the car you know what it was playing you know right all the starts 50s with, rock and roll yeah, starts yeah. with bad to, the, bad to the bone goes into the you know the 50s rock and roll and so on and so forth and you kind of miss Carpenter Carpenter score which he did with Alan Hallworth and I think it's one of his one of his best themes that he did but it gets forgotten because there's just so much Auditorially, um, music-wise, it's yeah. not his score, um, which I which I do think is amusing. That you know, the very first thing he directed since Ghost of Mars was he did a music video to their their yeah. um, reworking of Christine. I forgot, I forgot about that. Yeah, their reworking <laughs> of it was just awesome. I just loved it. Oh yeah, but no, I just I think that the what's what's great about King and what Carpenter always seemed to have kind of a beat on when he dealt with teenagers, which he only did a couple times was that there is you know there, there's a lot to be said that Christine is sort of a male perspective of Halloween, whereas the first you know Halloween focuses on the females and the the shape of evil. This one focuses on teenage male characters and yeah. the, the shape of evil that they're encountering, you know you've got right. the, You've got the, the the athletic best friend who is you know ride or die with his buddy who you know they grew up together. he's been bull- you know he's bullied constantly relentlessly by people. Right. And then he gets his car and, you know, I think in I think in the book, too, that um, God, what's his name? I'm going blank. His friend's name, Dennis. Uh, Dennis. Yeah. In the book, Dennis sits in the car and actually has a vision of what the car is. And that's the reason he hates it in the book. Whereas in the movie, it's just kind of like this car just don't feel right. But again, right. kind of kind of doesn't fit Carpenter's thematic because it does take you more into that. Overtly supernatural mentality of what is going on, whereas I thought Carpenter's direction of it was very subdued and really stayed true to the I don't know, the descent of Arnie from being this nice yeah. kid who was bullied into being empowered by Christine because fe- Christine was giving him this this power, and by vice versa, Christine is stealing his his essence to rebuild itself and and stay alive and stuff like that. But yeah, I just I always thought it was just very you know from from i think anybody who's ever grown up in a small town particularly and this has been mm-hmm. that you you gravitate toward arnie's like oh no if i had that car one i'd be so cool two if this car would just go take care of the the, the issues and another thing that was always interesting to me was the difference between the ending of the book and the ending of the movie because again i read the book obviously um yeah was that in the book dennis and um i'm forgetting names of characters It's been a a hot minute. But Dennis and and the female character. Lee. Lee. Lee, they go and destroy Christine. Yeah. Arnie never shows up at the end. Well, Arnie was. Well, he wasn't dead yet. They find out after the fact. Gotcha. He and his mother had died in a car wreck and that it was heavily implied that Arnie was actually a new. Christine, who was preying on him, knew it was dying and was trying to bring Arnie into it. And Arnie was fighting back for the first time because he was away from it. Right. ultimately crashed the car in order to stop Christine, which allowed his friends to kill it, which is great, which is cool. Uh, But I love Carpenter's version so much better. There's nothing creepier than Arnie, you know, when he drives through there and flies out the window, because up up until that that one shot, yeah, yeah, where he's literally dying. And his last thing he does is he lifts up his hand and strokes the fucking car and then dies. Right, right. Like to the very end, he, he was still you know, that car was still his obsession. And I just always thought that was yeah. much more interesting um, and more powerful way to conclude Arnie's story of that. The fact yeah. that it was, in an essence, his true love. And it was. Yeah. And and it was just it was I don't know. There's just something very interesting. Not only that, but the seeing Arnie at the end truly being almost ghost-like. Um, the makeup which, they do and the lighting yeah, on him, yeah, which was you know it's like he is no longer. There's nothing of Arnie left, very little right. left. and I always love that. But yeah, so that, that I I just think that the those are the kind of the elements that always draw me to Christine. I'm trying to think, and uh, I mean that vision of that fucking car on fire too, driving <laughs> always always. That
0: is right. a, that is like one of those shots that whenever I go to a horror or just even any convention really. There's so much great artwork that people do of like our favorite movies. I'm looking for like the right artwork of Christine on Fire.
2: Yeah. Well, another thing too, going back to the score, that's the first time the score really takes over, and you get that dun 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 dun. dun. And the the yeah, I don't know. It's just like that that whole scene where he's where he's chasing um Buddy Rafferty. Buddy Rafferty. Yeah. Is just like one of the best sequences in the movie but uh and, but it was interesting because um he'd done the thing and then Christine was almost kind of a return to form in terms of doing a smaller budgeted movie but it also was a property you know there's so right. many directors of the 80s that had latched on to king properties you know Christine was one of the best another one that i personally absolutely love is david cronenberg's version of the dead zone mm that's a good one yeah so stuff like that and most of the, yeah there was just that that period of where they were adapting a lot of his books and Nine times out of 10, um, they were great adaptations, I think. I, think I always ne- love to uh, shout out Cujo. Oh, yeah. Cujo's great. And the fun thing is, is Cujo was actually one of those movies that had one director. They started shooting it and then they fired him and they got a new director. Lewis Teague came on. He wasn't Louis Teague wasn't the original director of Cujo. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um. I yeah. can't God. Who was it? He I think he's the guy who did. I think he's the guy who did The Changeling. I don't know his name, but, the, but okay. First, I know the film. He had originally started it. And it was, apparently the first version was very much more the book, as in mm-hmm. the fact that the ghost of the Castle Rock killer was possesses the dog. But again, obviously they jet, jettisoned that and just like, nope, it's about, he got rabies. Because again, that's another one of those adaptations yeah. where like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of ghosts and supernatural elements into it, but it doesn't really translate or make too much sense in cinema.
0: Right, especially if you're trying to make like a, a 90 minute movie.
2: Yeah, because the thing is, is like so much of Cujo and the Dark Zone or the Dead Zone were in that same. They were both happened in Castle Rock, and gotcha. the whole idea was is that you know Johnny Smith found helped find the Castle Rock killer. Well, the Castle Rock killer and Cujo possesses the dog, and that's why yeah he winds up killing the sheriff that helped catch him. And it's so I mean yeah stuff like that in King's books has a lot of connective tissue. And so I'm yeah. like, and it's another adaptation kind of like Christine where it's like it, cutting out the overt supernatural elements and making it more ambiguous makes it more terrifying because I think in novels you have to explain what's going on and cinema you can show it and let people decide right. what is going on and what they want to be going on and I think that's the power of, you know, not only Carpenter but Cronenberg as well um, in those yeah. adaptations and uh antique got to give him a little bit of credit oh yeah but i well, uh, he, yeah he, i
0: never knew i never knew he was uh how do you say the replacement um well,
2: he, and he got it mainly because
0: of alligator well that i was gonna i always just thought uh, we'll get the guy that did alligator
2: to do the killer yeah. dog movie because no, that makes that, sense that, to me
1: <laughs> yeah that's exactly
2: that's exactly why they did it um was because it's like oh he know he knows how to do a creature feature basically with animals yeah that's how Teague got the movie. And then, ironically, he went on to do another King adaptation, Cat's Eye, which has
1: yeah.
2: a whole opening sequence that kind of wink, wink, nod, nods to other things. Like the cat runs in front of Christine and then Cujo <laughs> chases the cat. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's you know, there, there's like that kind of weird lineage of that that little grouping of uh, King adaptations there in the, the mid 80s that all kind of looked and felt the same. But obviously, because of the different directors had a different feel and vibe. But yeah, Christine and all those films taking that those more more of those supernatural elements out of it and making yeah. something more grounded and real, I think, is why they why they continue to be movies that people gravitate back towards, and particularly Christine because it is a, it's a classic a tale of an outsider and something to mention too. I mean, Harry yeah, Dean's yeah. in that movie, love him. I mean, Harry Dean is was always great. Like yeah, um, you know, and he'd worked with Carpenter on Escape from New York. He worked. He worked with Lynch a lot. Um. And well, he was and, just like. He's in, and,
0: he's been in so much, and yeah, I always think of Alien first. <laughs> yeah,
2: but he's always like, he's oh, there's that guy. He's one of those. Yeah, one of those exactly. Oh, there's that guy, and know, like,
0: man. and like, he has that one little. It's like a small little part in uh the Avengers, but that's the part I think of the most when um the hole falls through the building or whatever. Yeah. And then he's talking to the janitor. That's Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Where he's
2: like, "Son, you have a condition." <laughs> and which is gold hearing him say it but, yeah uh, but it is it's like and it was it was an interesting performance from him he's not in it that much but you've you've rarely ever got to see harry dean play basically a no-nonsense character he usually has a certain level of being eccentric with what he plays yeah and so he's like nope i'm a cop and i know you're up to something kid and i'm gonna i'm gonna figure out what it is and he plays you know played a very good kind of hard-boiled i'm gonna solve this case you know Cop, and I did love too that you know they did give him kind of a along with with uh Dennis and Lee's character kind of this cathartic moment at the end where they're like, okay, so that's what happened. Let's just not talk about it and move on with our <laughs> lives. But the fact that he I, showed uh, again yeah. with them as they crushed the car, talking about you know going back to Carpenter and thematics that he loves to do is again he has that theme as like you know evil never dies; it just changes shape, and that's yeah. something I always always look at and. The fact that most of his films have this ambiguous ending, which I think has heavily influenced myself and in the own th- the 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 stuff I work on, because there is that instance. that's like, do you ever re- you can't ever really truly kill evil, you know? From from Michael being shot out the window to the end of Christine, right. War for a brief moment you see the fender go, <laughs> like it's getting ready, to, it's right. starting to try to reform again, like it's not truly dead. And um, like
0: the thing, like his child's, yeah. Is
2: he or is he not? Yeah. you know. And I always love Carpenter's ex- explanation. He's like, I thought it was pretty obvious. <laughs> and apparently, I I got to rewatch it again. I haven't watched it. I I with Carpenter films, I watched so watched them so much when I was a kid that I try to like wait like four or five years before I rewatch them because gotcha. I don't want to. I watch I watched Halloween too much, and I can recite that thing more, verbatim. But like the thing, it's like I just love that claustrophobic visceral experience of that movie so much that it's been a while since i've revisited it but apparently like if you go from what carpenter said if you watch closely child's has no breath i've heard that too and i've never so well, it's, it's funny because
0: i'll i'll put it on with the intention of noticing it but you by the time it. i get to that point yeah.
2: i'm just so engrossed in the movie yeah <laughs> i forget Same me, but no i think again just i just always love those ambiguous endings of carpenter from you know from that you know when he's doing when he's doing horror even even in the mouth of madness you know uh, i still has one of my favorite endings of all time of just sam neill yeah. sitting in the movie theater just laughing maniacally <laughs> you know i um, i watched that movie for the
0: first time last year and it just shot straight like instant four stars i'm probably next time i watch it probably be four and a half stars just one of those movies just Oh, this was a banger. I'm kind of mad I haven't seen it before now, but I'm glad I've seen
2: it now. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I remember, again, age differentiation, but I remember when it came out, I remember getting the VHS and I don't remember for whatever reason, but my mom watched it first and she goes, that was just shit. It
1: was like a terrible
2: <laughs> movie. And then I watched it and I was like, what are you talking about? This movie is amazing. Um, but it that was the third part of his unofficial trilogy too. Yeah, yeah, with Prince the of Darkness, apocalypse. The, the Apocalypse trilogy again. Prince of Darkness again, probably one of my favorite endings of all time. You just mm. seen already touch the mirror and then black. Did you ever see Carpenter's um, one of his episodes of Masters of Horror? Okay, it's funny cigarette, you mentioned cigarette that, burns? and that's the only
0: Masters of Horror I've seen.
2: Yeah, <laughs> cigarette burns is amazing. Cigarette
0: burns, I. It's thought really was, good. Yeah,
2: I thought always thought cigarette burns was a, a has similar thematics to in the mouth of madness. They're, they with, are similar, yeah. The the idea of this this object that, that must be obtained and those who get closer to it, you know, yeah. start losing their minds and stuff like and that. And there's a
0: whole journey to even get to that point.
2: Yep, yep. And then you've got this character as he gets closer. What I liked about Cigarette Burns as opposed to, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not, this isn't a knock on either of them, but the, the interesting yeah. aspect of Cigarette Burns versus In the Mouth of Madness is that Norman Reedus' character has his own demons, and as he gets closer, those demons start coming out and start affecting him. Yeah. Whereas in, in the mouth of madness, you had this great dynamic of is John Trent even real? You know, <laughs> that, that yeah, line, yeah. That line that line that Sutter Kane says, he's like, you didn't you didn't exist until I created you. So but again oh, that's such a good movie. Yeah. And again, I what I love too about those as being a big fan of Lovecraft is those are Carpenter's Lovecraft movies. They're yeah they're, you know um the thing very much cosmic horror he took that initial the original story and it's like no this is going to be uh at the mountains at the madden out at the mountains of madness lovecraft's book yeah. and then prince of darkness obviously dealing again with cosmic horror it just wasn't oh the devil's just not this you know biblical entity it's actually this right cosmic thing that is just as connected to the universe as this that and the other same i love the- how I love how Prince of Darkness is, let's make the devil science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Carpenter said that he, at the time, he was really into learning about metaphysics, which is why it's, yeah. very, it's a group of scientists trying to, to figure it out. Um, And I've always loved that part in there where they mentioned that um, Christ was extraterrestrial and that he'd came, come to warn us of the cosmic entity that had fallen to earth and was building its yeah. strength. But the same way, and again, like, within the mouth of the madness, I mean, he really goes for Lovecraft, because Sutter Kane is Lovecraft. You know, the whole concept yeah. was, what if, what if Lovecraft, what if the stuff that Lovecraft was writing was not stories, but something that was being told to him by the ancient ones, you know? Yeah. So, so I, and again, all that stuff, very much so, and I think that's why Carpenter, when, when he deals with stuff that's, you know, not thematically like that, but you, you still deal with Michael and Halloween, and it's like, you know, Loomis is like, he's, You know, there's nothing there. He's just this shape. You know, they refer to him as the shape as he's just the embodiment. Whatever evil is attached itself to Michael has just become this form of evil. It's not he ceases to be Michael Myers, although we refer to him as Michael Myers, you know, but in the credits, he's the shape because he is just this this form of evil. Same way of Christine. Christine, the car itself is just this current shape of evil that the 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 protagonist must overcome. They must figure out a way to stop or postpone postpone the evil that's still there um and I just always love that thematic of all of Carpenter's films um and I think that does go back to early storytelling is you know I think that's what scares what why it scares us is that even when we think that we've overcome some evil it could always come back it could always rear its head in a different form you know the bed you know you know nighttime bedtime stories campfire stories stuff like that you sit around talk about it's like oh well you know it could be right over there even though and the story I just told you, it was stopped. It could right. be over there. And I think that that's one of the appeals of Christine for me is just this very benign thing. It, it, I mean, it's not it, like, at least with Michael and being the shape, you have a, a character that was at one time had personality. It was in a humanoid form. But here in Christine, you have essentially a variation of that. But it's a, it's an inanimate object. It doesn't have a soul. But what if you gave it a soul? Right. What if it was possessed by something that gave it life? And I like that that opening sequence in the movie too, which isn't in the book. But the idea that it was the the only reason Carpenter gives about it is like it was just born evil. It was yeah. made and from the second it was made, it was born evil, and it was going to seek out evil and possess the good and try to destroy anything that was that was good. And so that's what I think that's what always appealed to me about the Christ, the Christine concept, and particularly how Carpenter presented it in the film.
0: And I gotta say. I'm a huge fan of the opening scene in the movie mostly because I'm a, I'm a Detroit boy. So I love
2: myself a good Detroit uh, shout out. (laughs) And it's so great too, because it is this really great sequence. It's almost like um, when they did the teaser, Stan Winston directed the teaser for Terminator two. I
1: don't
2: know if you ever saw that. I remember it quickly, but um, Terminator two is running behind schedule in terms of its release date, this, that, and the other. And Cameron was like, I can't create a teaser for this. Can you, you know, his bold buddy Stan, he's like, can you create something? Here's some money. Yeah. So what he did was Stan literally created the assembly line of the creation of the T-800 Arnold. So you see like the arms going together and welding and you see that. And the last shot is you see the the cha- the the exoskeleton chassis go into the, the skin forming machine. And you see the mm-hmm. eyes come on." And then it shuts and then it opens up fog, fog, fog. And it's Arnold. He turns around and his eyes start glowing. That's and awesome. Really brilliant teaser going, oh, no. And again, it doesn't hint that he's the good guy. It's just right like, hey, back, which was always something that I love that Cameron attempted to do. But again, by today's standards, we all know Arnold and Terminator 2 was the good guy. But the way yeah. he sets it up, have you, if you have no inclination, he sets it up that, oh, no, Robert Patrick's character is probably the good guy because we already know the T-800 is the bad guy and it's not till they are in that hallway that you get that moment. It's like, Oh, so it always reminded me of that, but obviously Christine came before, but the idea of the assemblage of this, this monster, you know, it's, it's a Frankenstein sequence yeah. to me. It's, it's the, you know, the piecing together of this thing that is go- this monstrous thing that we're going to see be the, yeah. to be the antagonist through the film. And it's just a really cool, um, again, that, that just that idea of being Frankensteined into existence, you know, the, the good doctor has made made his monster and now it's going out on the assembly line. So that, that opening sequence just was always fascinating to me.
0: And I'm glad you brought up the sequence because we were talking about the music a little earlier in this uh, conversation and the way it goes from that cold open to like the main story is there's this awesome musical transition where we're listening to Not Fade Away from the 50s and I forget I forget the art the musical artist but it's kind of like this like 1950s not doo-wop but kind of like boppy rock and then he takes us to the 80s and it's a different version of the same song I think mm-hmm. Tanya Tucker's version is kind of like a rock, like a hard country rock kind of with, it's like mm-hmm. a rock with a twang.
2: Yeah. Cause it comes, it cuts from that with that sound transition to Dennis pulling up to yeah. pick up from school. And it was such a great little interesting transition of time displacement, you know, again, yeah. it's an instance in the film where it's like, we didn't have to see the necessarily see the, um, this is a different year. Um, right. Sound. And you know, obviously, the imagery tells you that it's a different year. Though time has passed, um, but yeah, that's that's great. But ironically, you know, the the bad to the bone mm-hmm. music at the beginning, obviously, which yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> talking about Terminator Two, was used in Terminator Two as well. But yeah, I just, I just, that's another great uses. Carpenter's always because he is a musician, always had has always had a great sense of where score should be and how score should be played out yeah. and, and used. You know, even going back to the thing, which is which is always our always cracks me up yeah i remember carpenter saying he's like i was always i was very excited i got Ennio morricone to do the mo- the music for the yeah thing. and then he gives me the score and he essentially said i'm going to, I'm, i made a score like you would make <laughs> because again it is it's like the score for the thing is very much carpenter-esque yeah you know? oh yeah and it's, again it's like morricone you know the guy who did the good the bad and the ugly and and the mission and you know all these other very epic scores it's like nope I'm going to do this very techno, subdued, haunting, you know, rhythmic theme for the thing. It's just it's it's always interesting because, again, it is a perfect score for the movie, though. Oh, no, absolutely. It's it's, you don't expect it from Ennio Morricone yeah it sets that tone and again when i was a kid you know i was first getting into movies i was always shocked i was like more coney did that it sounds like carpenter you yeah know, getting, exactly yeah but getting to the theme of christine you know the the, you mm-hmm. know, the that rhythmic beat think about th- the thing the you know the 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 nose noises in that, and that the beat in that boom 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 you know it's right. just very carpenter-esque the and only- halloween
0: is super rhythmic as well
2: yeah. I mean, the famous five,
0: four, dot, 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 yeah. dot, 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 super well, and, rhythmic.
2: And it's funny because I've always found this amusing just as somebody who loves composer, film composers and score. Yeah. Carpenter and Hans, Hans Zimmer has actually said this. He's, he said that Carpenter has been a major influence on his career. And I can think, hear right? it. Yeah. You think about think about the, the score for The Dark Knight. Oh, yeah it's oh, yeah. very rhythmic it's very carpenter-esque he, he i mean you know he's got a different aesthetic carpenter likes his th- sense whereas you know right. is very much orchestral but it's still got that same thematic and i think that's what and inception too i
0: think inception, yeah, inception. is inception. a natural progression from carpenter-esque to
2: zimmer-esque i would say yeah absolutely and that's what i think is always interesting to to hear a score and you're like huh That sounds like Carpenter, because you can't not be, I think composers can't not be influenced by him. But the only interesting thing is the only score, the only movie that he hasn't disowned post-Halloween that he didn't do the score for was Starman, which is very drastically different than musical thematics that he himself did, you know... Whereas Morricone was trying to emulate Carpenter, Jack Nietzsche was completely not. It's a great score, but it is kind of like when you're used to a carpenter score or corp. Carp- yeah. Carpenter, you get there and it's like synth orchestral and you know, very um it's the angelic- one that sticks out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that it's always interesting. But um, yeah, I just I think that but the thing is with with Christine is is uh, and we've mentioned this before, it's just that that lack yeah. of the carpenter score gets overshadowed shadowed by the music, by the actual songs. Um, so it has been really cool to see here in the last 10 years to see Carpenter kind of pull out all the stops on revisiting his scores in 2018. I did get the opportunity on Halloween night to go to the padellium in in Los Angeles and see him in concert. So that was really cool. And they actually had Christine there. They had actually brought in a Plymouth Fury. Yep. It was there. They had the Plymouth Fury sitting in the lobby. So yeah, you go in there. No one could
0: see what just happened, but I actually just died. (laughs) <laughs> i literally died of jealousy this is now ghost austin continuing the pot the ghost of austin about to possess my honda element and then
2: wreck <laughs> havoc on the town when somebody buys you and you can possess them
0: exactly yeah exactly oh my god i'm so i'm so happy for you but i'm also really
2: really jealous like it was it was one of those times where i was just like <laughs> in my life where i said well well shit how many opportunities am I going to be able to have this? And I was yeah. like, nope, I'm pulling out the stops. I'm going to do this. Because he was touring with his Lost Themes 2, but he or no, mm-hmm. his, his anthology thing where he'd gone, his first one, which he's coming out with Anthology 2 where he's revisiting themes to his movies, um, including Chariots of the, Chariot of the Pumpkins from Halloween 3, which is one of my favorites. But ironically, that was also the same year. Halloween 2018 had just come out. So not only yeah. was Carpenter on stage with his son, but Nick Castle's also- oh in the audience watching and the one of the coolest things was is when they did they would they had a big screen playing behind them and they would show scenes mm-hmm. from the movie and stuff like that the coolest one was that they live though because they all sit they're all standing there and they all take off their you know like, i think carpenter has he has his glasses but he takes off his glasses and they put sunglasses on and they hear boom 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 and the screen behind it goes obey and then they play it again and they would say consume and stuff like that that's
0: awesome
2: yeah it was such a such a cool experience getting to see him perform and it was kind of cool too because you know he hadn't made a movie in a long time he'd been focusing on, on on scores and stuff like that but to get him to get to get him see on get his see him on stage as the rock star you know yeah you know, it was kind of cool to get to see him up there on stage just kind of rocking out like you know i don't know if you've ever seen the music video to big trouble in Little china but um, you know again to see him kind of be that 80s rock star again, where he's just like, yeah, man, I'm just playing some tune <laughs> for you for you fine folk. So he's living his best life and we're here for it. Yep. And apparently, I mean, he's got a new thing coming out on Peacock, a new show.
0: It's like a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was suburban it,
2: somethings. Suburb, yeah, I can't remember what it is. Suburban Screams. Yeah. Which is by from what I understand, was him directing from his couch. <laughs> what like, a legend he's like it's great absolute I just... legend <laughs> yeah, i can just sit there and and i could tell i could watch this monitor from my living room and tell him what to do it was great <laughs> that's awesome so. he, he
0: he's definitely a big influence on me as well clearly i think we could tell he's yeah. uh, his films made a big impact on you i got a I i got an interesting take maybe we'll see Uh, But I want to know your opinions, because we we were talking about how Christine's score kind of gets overshadowed by the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And it made me kind of think, I think Christine kind of gets overshadowed when people talk about John Carpenter's films. Are Stephen King's adaptations Mm -hmm. or just just in general, like I said at the top of the episode, it's my favorite John Carpenter movie. It's my favorite Stephen King adaptation. It is literally in my top five all-time favorite horror movies. But I think most people, if you ask them what their favorite John Carpenter movie, I'd say most people would say The Thing or Halloween.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think you're right. It is definitely one of his films that gets overshadowed, and it's because it's wedged between (laughs) – which are which is funny, two bombs. Um yeah. <laughs> you know, which is which is sad because both of those bombs that it's wedged between as well as itself are I it, you know, Carpenter was one of those directors, I always felt like he was about ten to fifteen years ahead of his time yeah. because it, he made these movies. And, you know, the thing had what it had going against it was E.T. had just come out. Nobody wanted to see cosmic horror. They wanted, right. fl- you know, fluffy, you know, riding in bicycles over the the, the moon type of shots. You know, Sp- they went Spielberg happy go lucky stuff.
0: Well, if it correct me if I'm wrong, but the same month had E.T.,
2: Poltergeist, Blade Runner and the thing yeah it was very loaded but it wasn't just that i mean it was the the critics the critics just went yeah around, it, this is disgusting filth and blah 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 right. blah blah and you know i know remember reading somewhere it's like where's the love interest and i was like that's kind of the whole point is that it's not it strips that away because if you've ever seen the original thing from another world there's yeah yeah yeah. The, the, the there's these love interests that have to be there because that was the time period but right. it makes no sense and that that and... concept of the time period that that there would be a love yeah. interest in the Antarctic. And by not doing that, you have a whole group of guys who are just much like Alien, a bunch of blue collar guys that are just like stuck there because that's what they're supposed to do and they're doing their job. Yep. Oh God, here comes the winner. We're going to have to buckle down. Yeah, you've got that. And then you've got Christine, which is his rebound because he's like, King is hot, surfire success, which it wasn't. And then he goes <laughs> and does Big Trouble in Little China, which is... Yeah. You know, doesn't get enough credit for its really amazing Asian cast and its really amazing martial arts scenes and just overall Big Trouble in Little China is like one of my top carpenters. But it does get lost in the mix because Thing became so big in his in his uh filmography, and then it was buckled, you know, butted up against Big Trouble in Little China, which again became very big in his filmography as a right. as an action adventure movie. And people Again, you, I, I sit there and I said it, mentioned it earlier. Christine was sort of a return to form in terms of the look. Yeah. because You, you had Escape from New York, which was still in the indie world and it has this kind of gritty, you know, uh, vibe to it. And then he started producing, you know, the Halloween, you know, Halloween two and three. Those were two did fine. Three was a bomb. I love three. I think it's amazing. I wish we would. Yeah, seen, I love three. Wish we would have seen a whole series of movies that were just Halloween thematic instead of just Michael coming back every time but i digress but then you had christine which looks and feels like carpenter pre the thing it does yeah it, it very much feels like it's like if you look at the aesthetic of haddonfield and yeah it um, feels like it's in the same world to in me in the same world exactly and it's just because of you know the cinematography and the pacing and stuff like that. So that's why i always look to me it always I, they were always kind of which is it. funny because i think i don't think dean cundy did christine I don't think he did but that's obviously i'm gonna look it up real quick to confirm i
0: know he did obviously he did halloween and i'm pretty sure he did halloween through the thing dean cundy
2: yes i believe so and it was this one where he didn't do it um, right yeah it was a different different dp but it looks and feels completely like the uh, cundys work yeah and i think that's just it because after that you know the thing had that feel but it was you could tell there's a little more of a budget there um, right, and the they were definite, and and there's a lot of light, I think, in the thing. Yeah, he doesn't well, get
0: to play with shadows as much.
2: <laughs> and the thing you can't really do, though, I mean, aesthetically, yeah. when you're shooting in the snow, that's really hard. Right, exactly. You know, oh, we put up a light. Well, everything's nuclear winter. We can't really right too much. But no, Christine definitely had that. Has that cinematic visual vibe of specifically halloween but the the collaboration yes. with dean kundi of dean kundi in the um earlier stuff but then again he'd go right after that he would go and um follow that up with big trouble in little china which is back to more hollywood more studio money yeah So it, so it has an entirely different look and vibe looks a little more polished and stuff like that and then he got sick of that well no i guess he did starman too in there i forgot about yeah Star- starman somewhere in there too. yeah it's like i right gotta say 15. i gotta say I want to walk
0: back my comments saying there's only so much you could do with all that light in the thing. Um, you can't play with the shadows as much. Uh, the one of the most iconic shots from that movie is the shot of the silhouette of the dog yes. walking towards the whoever it it is. I'm like, how could I make that boneheaded comment when one of the greatest shots <laughs> in cinema is and just, playing with shadows? Fades,
2: and then it just fades to black. You don't know who exactly. Yeah, there's like two shadows because it's like the shadow of a, one a person which Carpenter specifically put somebody who wasn't in the cast in there to make it completely ambiguous who it was. Then you saw the shadow of the, yeah, no, it's, yeah, that's, it's great. And again, it's just, there is a certain level of lighting to it. Like you just can't, but again, you look at the, the dog transformation scene, there's a lot of harsh shadows playing that. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's some stuff like, I think we get, we remember like the opening scene, but when it gets to the nighttime stuff, i mean there's a lot of a lot of play with light in there yeah, yeah. and i and i always think of like the lab scene
1: yeah the lab under scene are those
2: right. harsh lights yeah, harsh lights but then you've got scenes like where they're trying to go outside at night and and you know
1: yeah so it's just yeah,
2: yeah no it's, it's I,
0: I, it was a boneheaded comment i walk it back <laughs> i walk it back. all right you can, like...
2: we'll, we'll let you take it back
0: <laughs> and then i think of halloween which has plenty of daytime iconic daytime scenes but the whole third act is halloween night and that's yeah. where when i think of that aesthetic i think of yeah night.
2: You, you forget about the build-up and you know even with christine there's a lot of it there's a good balance there but all the daytime stuff yeah. completely feels like the aesthetic of of haddonfield and how it was shot yeah or pasadena whichever <laughs> um, and then oh i was just gonna say on the flip side
0: I think Steve, uh, I think Christine also gets overshadowed by Stephen King's other adaptations. Like, we were talking about John Carpenter a bunch, but it's yeah. real quick tangent, uh, not tangent, but aside, one, the thing I love about Christine, why I think it's my favorite of both, is because it's like a perfect merging of both. And you, we were talking about that a bit earlier, so I want to make sure we give some Stephen King love, because <laughs> yeah. it's not all Carpenter. A mm-hmm. lot of it has, of this film's why I love it so much has to do with Stephen King, but I can also recognize while it's my favorite Stephen King, you're going to be overshadowed when you're put in the same room as the shining.
2: Well, and the thing is though, is that from sh- the shining, uh, well, this is, this, this rewind since the yeah. seven- we could start at Carrie, right? Carrie, Carrie started it. King mm-hmm. has said many times that had Carrie not been as good as it was. He would have not had his career because that movie, right? Took his his novel, adapted it in a way that made it brilliant, yeah. even more so than the book, and allowed him to keep doing movies. You know, and then Salem's Lot came about, which I am a big fan of. Toby Hooper did that one, mm-hmm. uh, but again, that one took real big leaps in 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 uh, adapt yeah. adaptation. But th- yeah, but then Kubrick's again big leaps in adaptation. It's the one movie that King just flat out refuses to acknowledge that it's good and it as a king adaptation it's not good as a, yeah it is brilliant but, right you know, i can see
0: where he's coming for i can i can empathize with this
2: yeah. well and and the book the shining is my favorite book of kings at least as of his gotcha. and so i'm always like there's some there's some real bad <laughs> dialogue in the book and so i get that but to cut out that's an instance where Again, like with Christine, Carpenter acknowledged, it really grasped onto the idea is that the car is the embodiment of evil. I don't think as an adaptation of The Shining that Kubrick achieved that with the hotel like the book does. You know, it's like it really plays up the fact, well, Jack's just insane. There's no ghost. He's just seeing this shit. You know, and that yeah, he downplayed he downplays the supernatural. Kubrick downplays the supernatural so much that it ceases to be what it should. You know, what it what what it was started off as a novel. Again, I know people will go back and forth, but I love I love The Shining as a movie as an adaptation of the book. It's 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 a little bit too much for even me. (laughs) Nick Garrus did a good adaptation, but he had a lot of things going against him. One, it was a TV adaptation. Two, miscast the kid, but Stephen Weber, I thought was great as Jack. He is Jack Torrance is much. He's much closer to how Jack Torrance was in the book as a as a guy that very conflicted with his with his alcoholism and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and a certain level of guilt, which is what the hotel preys upon. I think it was yeah. even, Spielberg, even Spielberg said it. He's like, it's like, why did you cast Nicholson as Kubrick? Or, uh, what, Kubrick or Stanley? Why did you cast Jack as as Jack or Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance? <laughs> Jack, yeah, <laughs> and he's like immediately people are going to think he's insane right i don't even remember kubrick's response but it's the truth it's like from the second you see nicholson in that movie he's like oh he's nuts and that's that's the big cardinal sin of that adapt the adaptation aspect of the shining is that there is no sympathy for jack torrance whereas in the book there's a great deal of sympathy with jack torrance because king himself was an alcoholic and a, and a, a drug addict and i think he i think that's why he kind of always felt slighted with it because he's like, no, this is about a man who is trying to overcome his, 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 ailm, you know, his addiction. Yeah. And he happens to be put in the situation where it's preying upon that addiction to make him more and more evil. So, but I, I again, it, but it is, you're, you're completely right. Christine gets lost in the mix because in the early eighties, it was a free for all for King adaptations. Yeah. Everything was getting at ad- it adapted. I mean, you got Firestarter, you've got Cat's Eye, you've got, which we mentioned earlier, you've got Christine, we got a Maximum Overdrive, the King himself directed yeah. on a Coke fueled. Um, <laughs> um, well, Cujo, it,
0: Cujo came out in the same year
2: as Christine. Yeah, and, and Cujo. And, and there's just so much. I mean, there seems yeah. like missing some more, but there's just so Silver many- Bullet. Silver Bullet, which, again, that, that is one of the movies. If I had carte blanche to sit there and adapt uh, adapt any readapt or remake uh, anything of kings mm. I would redo silver bullet and that's not to say i don't love silver bullet i fucking love silver bullet it is one of my it's favorite a good movie i've really enjoyed it one of my favorite king adaptations i love i'm a big fan of the 80s sense of kids in peril kind of yeah. genre is what i call it but like the idea that like these kids going up against this werewolf, the bet. And I'm sorry, Everett McGill in that movie is gold. Yeah. Like I just, love. Oh, it it. but the thing that always got me, got, got me. And this is from a makeup effects standpoint, the werewolf sucks. Like it sucks so bad. Yeah. That it takes down the movie's brilliance.
1: <laughs>
2: Man, well, I, uh, I watched a- it
0: for the first time this summer. Um, Cause I've never seen it before. And I was look I was at my grandma's and I was looking for something her and I could watch together but I wanted to watch something kind of scary but not too scary yeah. you know cuz I'm watching it with my grandma and um I'm like okay 80 Stephen King how bad can it be and like this dude gets fucking decapitated yeah in the almost first- immediately yeah and my grandma was like <gasps> And I was like, we're watching this. I don't care. We're still watching. And she loved oh, it. But it was great. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> and I was like, is... oh, shit. Oh, it's no, it's great. It was one of those movies I saw when I was a kid. It scared the shit out of me. But as I got older, I was just like, oh. And then I read, which isn't really reading. It's the gestation of that movie. And here's one of our tangents. We're going off, off script. But the, the gestation of Silver Bullet was Cycle of the Werewolf, which King worked with Bernie Wrightson to create a calendar. It started off as a calendar. And so it was each month the lunar cycle would come, the werewolf would come out, and an incident would happen. And it did have the narrative thread that by the end of it the, the they knew who the werewolf was, the werewolf attacked them; they killed him. But it was called Cycle of the Werewolf because it was like this monthly thing that would happen. Whereas the That movie, is pretty cool. Whereas the movie crams it into like a summer. Like this all happened. Gotcha. It's like, but yeah, but the moon only is full once a month. So Right, they had that line in there where Corey Corey Hame is like, maybe as the moon gets gets fuller, he gets more wolfier. So that was their explanation of why he's like, oh no, he's every night he's slightly turning, but it's only on the full moon that he completely loses himself to the the beast. Gotcha. Um, and and so I just always love that, but I always call it the werebear because it's yeah <laughs> yeah. Yep. Which, which interesting <laughs> note is that the the church scene in that. Where everybody starts turning was not done by the same guy. Carlo Rambaldi, who did ET, which was heavily ripped off of Rick Baker's design for um Night Skies, which was a which was a Spielberg movie that didn't get made. There's there's an interesting history between Rick Baker and Carlo Rambaldi. Carlo Rambaldi gets an Academy War and an honorary academy award for King Kong. He did nothing, nothing, none of his like three seconds of his work is in the movie. Rick did everything else. So that started that whole thing. Then Rick works with Spielberg to adapt to create the aliens for Night Skies. Well, then Spielberg decides to retool it as a kid's film and makes it E.T. Rick said he couldn't do it. Pisses off Spielberg. He owns the rights to the design. He gives him to Bram Baldi, He makes E.T. Mm. <laughs> so that's kind of that lineage of that. So then you've got Rick, who wins the Academy Award for American Werewolf, his protege Rob Botine who does the howling, and then Bram yeah. and makes probably one of the worst werewolves of the 80s. Because he 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 was a, he was a, he only knew the mechanics. He didn't know the process of building the stuff around it. So I've got a book on it uh, by Lee Gap, Gabin, which is great about the, the making of the Howling or not the Howling of uh, Silver Bullet. Oh, cool. Uh, and and I think it was I think it was him. Anyway, I digress. But the idea was is that they originally did it and then they cast the actor and like there was just they it was piecemealed. They tried to piecemeal it and it just never worked. But yeah, so that would be if there was if there was a king adaptation that I would jump at the opportunity to remake, it would be that. I don't wonderful. know if I have one at the moment.
0: Because yeah. I could, you know, that could change in a couple of years as I grow as a filmmaker. Oh absolutely
2: but silver Bull has been a consistent like through my life it's like no i just yeah. love it. i love that story i come from i grew up in a small town so it's like i gravitate towards that that setting in a lot of my in a lot of my my productions and stuff like that is that evil coming to a small town and how does you know how does the town deal how do, and i think that's why king was always so appealing not just to myself but to people in general is that most of his stories were very small town oriented people yeah. people you know, most of the country is rural, So they gravitated to toward the, towards these horror stories of like the evil next door and, and just like, Oh, well, you know, same with Christine's like, Oh, well, there's just this car, but this car, yeah, yeah, you know, we've heard that we've, people have heard that car going around at night and, and people have died, but we can't prove anything. You know, there's a site like, that, you know, which is also again, going back to a carpenter thematic of, you know, the town playing a part in, in, in that, that fear and also, ultimately, sort of feeding that fear that creates the monster to begin with, right? right. Yeah, so it's it's like that. Uh, I just always loved Silver Bullet, but yeah, that that era just was so much king, and it gets lost in yeah. there. I think well, we, there's also the
0: Dead Zone too, yeah. which we mentioned earlier yeah, with Cronenberg. I was I was saving that in my pocket for when we came back to the <laughs> the heyday, and then like I mean, we're talking about a lot of the horror stuff. There's Stand by Me in the eighties, yeah that's definitely one of the most popular king adaptations it's going to bother me if i don't if i don't give you what i would do as a king adaptation but it's just <laughs> like i don't know i just i haven't come across one where i feel it in my bones you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah and i think so it, i
2: think with silver bullet it was because i saw it at such a young age that it's yeah. with me i wouldn't i wouldn't think i'd touch anything else maybe a close second would be salem's lot that'd um, be cool But again, they're supposed to be someone redid that, but Warner Brothers has shelved it. So either really bad or Warner Brothers is waiting to I don't know. Uh, Interesting. Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, if Stephen King like kidnapped me, put a gun to my head and told me I have to direct one of his books as a movie, if Mm -hmm. I was forced to do it, I would begrudgingly attempt Christine but I would kind of hate myself doing it. Well, here's the thing. It's my favorite story and there's so much stuff to do with it, but John Carpenter already did it right. So what's
2: yeah. the point? <laughs> exactly. And that's, and I think that's why silver bullet is like they did it right, but it's not cycle of the werewolf. Like there's right. stuff in cycle of the werewolf that they kind of cut. And ultimately the wolf needs to look cooler. And I, you know, yeah, because I'm, I'm a huge Bernie Wrightson fan and to sit there and say, oh, this is Bernie Wrightson's design. Why didn't you just make Bernie Wrightson's design? Because Boteen and Car- or B- Boteen and um, Baker more or less did it with the howling in their des- initial designs. It's like, you could have done that. Oh, I was going to say, interesting side yeah, note. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> side note, since we're talking about King adaptations of that era, and you brought yeah. up the Dead Zone again. How is the Dead Zone connected to Carpenter? I didn't know it was. It is connected <laughs> because Deborah Hill who stopped being his producer, went on to produce the dead zone for Cronenberg. I didn't that. Oh, I didn't know. That. I, I probably did.
0: I probably, when I watched it, noticed her name in the credits. I'm like, that's awesome. And then forgot until just this mo- yep. moment. That's so, yep, awesome. because after
2: Halloween, after Halloween three, they stopped working together because obviously he had married Barbeau at that point and it just didn't work. Yeah. But her her, movie, her next movie after she did Halloween three was the dead zone. Which was you know a king adaptation from 83. so it's always interesting that they're that they're still they both the Dead had... Zone
0: came out in 83 yep Cujo Christine and the Dead Zone Dead Zone all came out in the same
2: year. holy shit <laughs> yeah. and again, I think that's why it's it was such a bizarre time if you saw these adaptations because you know King obviously had a huge falling in the eight, following in the 80s yeah. and Carpenter had a huge following. Which was interesting because you'd think that that would have been there, but I think it was just an oversaturation of the market and none of them really fared well at the time financially, but they all became, ultimately became classics, you know. And it is interesting, I think, too, going back to the different directors, the different aesthetics, as you can see, it's a a good, (coughs) um, interesting thing to watch all three of them back to back because they were all released in the same year but to sit there and go back and look at the different aesthetics and approaches to the the material. Yeah. Because you have, you know, Carpenter's movie that is very Carpenter-esque. And then you have Cronenberg, which is very, very Cronenberg, you know, Lewis Teague, you know, he was a a Corman kid. So he still has that kind of Corman vibe about him. It's an, it's an interesting aesthetic, but again, like you said, to go back to your original point, there's just too much. There's too much. And it's too saturated. And, you know, it got lost in the mix as and it became a, what became a lesser carpenter, which I I think there's only maybe two films of his that I would consider lesser carpenters. And that's kind of Ghosts of Mars and um, Body Bags. But Body Bags was always intended mm-hmm. to be a series. Um, right. and, and we don't we don't count uh, memoirs of Invisible Man because Carpenter uh, denies <laughs> it, has denied that as being part of his his thing. You know, if you don't count it, neither do I. <laughs>
1: yep,
2: exactly. well you know and and carpenter with christine and i think with a lot, most of his movies and i think the reason why i mentioned earlier he's kind of was always kind of ahead of his time is the way he adapted things always seemed like they are on the pulse of what was going on but that the society as a whole hadn't caught up to yet i i'm i'm a i'm a um escape from la apologist i think escape mm-hmm. from la is great I think it's got a lot of great stuff in it. I love Carpenter's whole reason for doing it. Essentially, it was his Rio Bravo is what he called it.
1: Yeah. Like,
2: well, if Hawks can remake Rio Bravo twice and basically have the exact same story, why can't I do that with Snake Plissken? But the governmental structure and thematics in that movie are very reminiscent of certain political figures and situations in the last 10 years. So it was always interesting to see, like, some of those thematics and come through in his, his work, even though he's like, I, I wouldn't plan on that. it's was like, you probably weren't, but you were obviously paying attention to stuff and you saw the writing on the wall with stuff like that. You know, he was very good at entertainment, but there was always some thematic in there of, of, I mean, even Christine has this essence of our, our current situation of, of um, obsession with nostalgia. You know, Arnie didn't want the car, you know, didn't want a new car. He wanted that car. Right. And, and the, the very essence of the fact that, you know, again, according to the book, that it was a, a obsession with the, that car and that essence of that nostalgia of that car will ultimately led to kind of its its evil formation. But it's just something interesting that I was like. And again, this is one of those things where it's just like, well, I just made a movie about a uh, about killer car. You know, it'd be something like sounds like something Carpenter would say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we but we as viewers, people who love the film, people yeah. who watch it over and over again and experience more things and read stuff, you 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 get to sit there and and pull things out or notice things that you 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 find appealing, which is what is the beauty of movies in general or even you know it just just art in general is movies change every time we watch them because we change every time we watch them, yeah. And case in point, another King adaptation, which was a couple of years later, but Pet Cemetery, yeah. I watched that as a kid and I was like man this is scary it's creepy. I watched that again years I mean lots of years later. I watched it a couple other times but I watched it years later after my kids were born and let me tell you that movie has a whole different feel to it after you become a father and you have a couple of three or four year olds running around the house and you decide to watch that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you go oh shit I totally get what's going on I yeah this this thing is Not just a horror movie now. This is a reflection of the horrors of losing a child. And so I think that's what's interesting about cinema. And like when I first saw Christine, it hit me different than it does now when I watch it. Yeah. To me, it was like, well, it's not as good as, you know, when I first saw it again, you have to understand. I watched it when I was like 10 back in yeah. Like, I, well, it ain't Halloween. It's yes, something exactly. <laughs> because again, as like my became started being a carpenter fan, I wanted to watch all those movies. And to me, it was like yeah. uh, blah blah blah. But then, like most of the stuff we brought up here, years afterwards, watching it, watching it over and over again, and seeing a lot of the character layers and the 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 thematics in there that you didn't notice when you when you were just a kid going, I just want to watch a scary movie. But now, as a person who is You know, gone through gone through life and has seen some stuff, and you look back on it and you recall being Arnie's age and going. I could totally see why Arnie lets the thing take over. It empowers him. It gives him it gives him power, power that he doesn't have. Just Arnie Cunningham, the car powers him. The car, and and by vice versa, he powers the car, and that symbiotic relationship between the two has been used over and over again and other things um you know like the, the venom character in the marvel movie yeah. you know, cool stories is that. well i was that. gonna say like
0: spider-man 3 toby Maguire goes through his arnie cunningham
2: arc yep yep exactly and i think that was i think that's what appe- has appealed to me and continues to appeal to me is that thematic and you know i guess going back to the performances i want to talk about keith gordon because yeah my God, I, I I love that guy. I've loved his performances. Like the very first movie I ever saw with Keith Gordon in was Back to School, Rodney Dangerfield's movie. <laughs> I'm I that's my favorite comedy of all time. I will watch that movie over and over and over again. But what I love about Keith Gordon, and not only just his performance in that, but his his career is that he worked with some of the greatest directors of the 70s and 80s. And from his accounts is like when he was on set, he was talking to them about how do you make movies? How do you do this? And then ultimately he became a director. So, I mean, he, he was in De Palma's Dressed to Kill. Granted, it wasn't Spielberg, but he was in Jaws 2. He was in Christine. He was in Back to School. So he had all these, these really predominant films, but he was always brilliant in them. And again, I guess, I mean, he went back, he was, he worked on De Palma's movie Home, Home Movies, I think it was it called right before he did Dressed to Kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of more of a exercise in filmmaking but his performance and his transformation in christine in such subtle performative ways is is just really really why i think i keep going back to it is watching his if it had been a, you know if it had been a mini series you get see the slow descent a little bit more but seeing that slow descent from this kind of home-bodied you know norman bates dominated by parents kind of weird little mousy kid to you know needing his buddy to kind of stand up from him which was very much an 80s aesthetic but then to get to see that turned on its head with him going oh no you're you're the you know you're all the problem the world's the problem i'm the only one that's right it wasn't just a matter of oh i'm possessed by the car it's like his entire outlook on life changed to where everybody was everybody was the problem except for christine everybody was out to get him everybody's shitters yeah everybody are the shitters the shitters of the world death of the shitters yeah. of the, and just that that crazed look you know we brought up that his his final shot in the movie but there's so much pathos in that shot in his performance yeah See nothing just looking and doing a little arm movement and it's it's amazing um but yeah he just he was always one of my favorites of the eighties and you know, it, it's great that he went on to directing and stuff like that. But I, he was one of those, one of those guys that I would, actors slash directors that I would love to just sit down because of the, the amount of stuff <clears throat> that he did with the directors that he did in such a 10, yeah. you know, short, short amount of time of 10 years <clears throat> was pretty interesting and awe inspiring, but he was always good. And I think definitely by far his tour de force performances in Christine he, he pulled out all the stops in terms of what, what he could do acting wise. Well, I,
0: this might be a, this might be a very, very hot take, but I, I'm, I'm going to say it cause I truly believe it. I believe Keith Gordon's performance as Arnie Cunningham is one of the greatest top 10 all time greatest performances in a horror movie.
2: I would concur. I mean, it, it's, it's, he doesn't take it as a horror. You know, there's some actors that know they're in a horror movie and they go for it. Yeah. Much like Carpenter and how he presented it. He took it as a love story and yeah. a love story. And I think that's how it looked like he played it out there. There is that, that I mean, so, so much recently is that movie Titan, which there is this weird, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. But, but there is like, there's always been this weird psychosexual relationship between the mill, um, id and mechanics and cars and you know whereas titane really goes for it but there is this you know you truly believe that he has found his one true love and by god nobody's taken car, man. You know,
0: well i think there's a reason why a bunch of guys we name our cars
2: women <laughs> yep well christine i mean her yeah. name it's a woman that is his girl i mean i mm-hmm. even says that in the movie he's like this is you know christine's my girl and, like, even yeah, that, yeah, even that scene with Lee in the car where she's choking and already just kind of is like, oh, okay, Christine's jealous. Oh, maybe I should help. Like, there's that whole scene where it's like, yeah, he's trying to decide of whether or not he wants to be loyal to Christine, who is not flesh and blood, but truly obsessively loves him versus this woman who has. Reservations about being with him, and this, that, and the other, and it was just a nice little confliction. And it is in the book too, but the way that Keith performed it almost is like he was just watching it transpire, and then the good part of Arnie kicked back in for a moment, saying, "Oh my god!" And then someone's dying, (laughs) someone's dying, and then the guy comes and helps, and there's like this altercation where he's just like, "What the you know? What are you doing?"
0: Right? He gets protective out, not protect, not not even protective. He gets like territorial.
2: Yeah, exactly. Which is to me always was is like, oh no, he's getting territorial because Christine has made him that way, has gotten him in that yeah. sense. It's like what is mine is mine, Christine is mine, Lee is mine, and nobody's taking right. away. But no, I just I, I you know had to bring bring up Keith Gordon because I just thought that he completely anchors the movie in a way that just makes the whole thing work. And I mean, even what John Stock Stockwell. I believe it is. No, as as Dennis. Dennis, 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 yeah. As Dennis, John Stockwell's Dennis is just so good. And having this, he's he's like an anti jock. You know, '80s was all about jocks being the bad guys, right? You know, and he was kind of like the anti jock of the '80s in the sense that he was a good guy. You know, yeah, he, he was loyal to his buddy Arnie. You know, in fact, they're 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 brothers. You know, like yeah. he genuinely is terrified of what Arnie's becoming, and and thus tries to. Help him, and he. There is that remorse at the end where he's like, you know, maybe if we'd have done something sooner, we could have saved Arnie. You know, like there's there's a heartbreak in him in him that they didn't save Arnie in the process. Yeah, which is interesting. But again, I i as typical with King, the bad guys are more or less the '80s versions of greasers. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, they, like it, that's why I think was interesting is that even though it was the '80s, like um, Buddy Referton and all them were clearly like still kind of pseudo had that vibe of you know the the greaser you know the the greasers of the of the the 50s you know it it was always interesting to me like how they were portrayed i was like these guys are a little bit not in their time placement which is kind of interesting because them not being Mm -hmm. in their time feeling like they're in their time and place adds to kind of that awkwardness of of them because i mean even in the 80s i'm sorry but if dude whips out a switchblade the teachers are like all right get out of here i was like no, even the '80s, they'd be calling the cops and like this some bitch needs, yeah, yeah. To be dealt with. But they're just like, oh, just get out of here. We've had enough of this. Shoo off, you know. You're you're expelled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he's still like walking, like walking, driving around town like nothing. Yeah, no, nothing, no big deal. He threatened this right. kid, but nah, no big deal. What always cracks me up though, too, about that is like casting wise of Buddy Rafferton is that like John Stockwell and Keith Gordon. and and, and even alexandra paul feel like you know again they're always a little bit older but they feel like they're (laughs) teenage buddy rafferton feels like he's this he's this like 30 year old man (laughs) like well i'm still you know i'm still in school because i got nothing better to do you know i just thought that that was one of those moments where i was always felt off i was
0: listening to i was listening to a podcast um about christine earlier this week and it's so funny because they mentioned I think they look looked it up. So if I if I'm wrong, blame them, not me. But I think they looked it up because they said the same thing. He looks like a 30 year old, but he was in his early 20s. <laughs> that's
2: that's always so weird. Maybe. It's yeah, just yeah. The, it was the hair or something, but it just always hair
0: like, is. Yeah. the hair. Yeah. The hair is like
2: something beautiful. I got to admit. Oh, yeah. It was very <laughs> 80s, very 80s. Big. Yeah. Oh, that was one thing I thought was always was funny. Carpenter said, so Alexandra Paul, who played Lee, is a mm-hmm. twin in real life. And I can't remember if it's on the commentary to the movie or something like that. But apparently her sister came in one day and they were playing a prank on Carpenter. So he's like directing her and stuff like that. And she's like, yeah, Alexandra, why are you being so terrible today? it was was going on? And like they pulled out something like that. There was like this prank that was pulled on Carpenter with with the twins that they, they mess with him with it came out. It was very funny Cause I, I think Keith Gordon and John Stockwell were in on the joke, but Carpenter wasn't. That's I awesome. They, I think they did kind of like that one where she would, the sister would be there and then she would leave. And then Alexandria would be like, what are you talking about, John? That's what, what's happened. What is, you know, he's like, I just yeah. told you this. So that's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, also too you know, talking, you know, going back to some of the, more of the casting is like some of the, the, you yeah. know, we've talked about Harry Dean Stanton, we've talked about the, the younger leads but you know, like the guy who played Bar- Darnell and and mm-hmm. you know, and the guy that plays LeBay, you know, very well-known character actors had done a lot of stuff. I mean, for God's sake, LeBay is the the old man from Home Alone. <laughs> you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's always like, oh, oh, look, whatever, you know. But it's funny too, because he gets he gets his rap as kind of playing this kind of creepy old man. Yeah, you, know, you got that, and and you can't uh, watch Home Alone the same way after you watch yeah. Christine, though. Yeah. He did. <laughs> what, what is he? What is? What does his, his character say? And Christine is like, I'm about myself." Yeah, yeah. or something like that. I was like, I no, like it's like, no, it's this-
0: like nothing better than uh than a smell of uh, of a new car. Except yeah. maybe
2: for pussy, something like that. But he but he mentions too that he moves away. That he's yeah. going to, that he's got a condo or some shit like that. And I was just always like, well, maybe he just moved it. Maybe he moved to Chicago. And, you know, I always have, these, always have these fun theories of like, if you see a character like an, it, that essentially is playing a, a character actor is essentially playing a very, very similar version of the character in a different movie. It's like, you know, what if that is that same character? And how did they get there? My favorite yeah. one, my favorite one to always play with is um, Jeff Bridges in Kong 76. Is I like to play up the fact in my head that after the events of Kong 76, that his character moved to California, changed his name back to his birth name of, of Jeffrey Lebowski, and just got stoned out of his mind to forget the events of 76. Yeah. So <laughs> in my head, in my head, Jeffrey Lebowski is the same character from nineteen uh, Kong 76, and he couldn't handle the the events of Kong seventy six. So he he moved to L A. and has just been stoned out of his mind for the last, you know, twenty years. I love that. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I I think that I think you know, kind of the thing about Christine that will always be the endearing part of it to me is mm-hmm. the sense of being an outsider. And I think that's what yeah. works so good. So works so well for for King stories is that. Being a teacher and being an author and being an outsider himself growing up, he always gravitated towards what he knew. And that was the outsiders and how they would interact with things. And sometimes outsiders overcome the power that they are given and realize that, you know, this is consuming me. And some, you know, outsiders allow that consumption of power to destroy them, which is what happens to our, you know, the the power of Christine was too much for him. It, It just... There was no going back. It was he had completely and utterly given himself over to the car and, you know, worse other characters, you know.
0: Well, like the Losers Club in it, they yeah.
2: find a way to take down uh, Pennywise, who yep. is also
0: a manifestation of evil. And, you know, I got to say, I'm proud of us for waiting this long to mention Pennywise in the <laughs> whole Stephen King, which is funny because Christine makes a little cameo in It.
2: Yep. Yeah. And one of the thing is, though, is those of us who are, you know, big King fans, it, they're all yeah. they're all connected. Like right. Every, all the book, every, the whole universe, every book he's ever written is connected to the Dark Tower. It's always it, always amusing when people are like, well, it makes sense if Christine was in this, you know, or at least it was in the background. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. You know? I was a little
0: disappointed when I saw it. Chapter two, when Pennywise are not Pennywise, um, his the bully's zombie friend. I forget their names. Yeah. But uh, when he didn't pull up in a 1958 red Plymouth Fury.
2: That does seem like a missed opportunity.
0: Yeah. I uh, was like, that's not book accurate. I mean, I get why they didn't. But at the same time, I really don't get why they didn't
2: do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we could do a whole nother podcast just on the it adaptations. And it oh, was- yeah. Two adaptations versus the book versus this, that, and the other, and why? Yeah, I don't that'd think, be another easy two hours. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. I mean, the problem with those books and that the adaptation of that book is the, the structure of the book works because of the way it parallels the story, and yeah. neither adaptation has gone that way. They always break it up into well, here's when they're younger, and here's when they're older. And I was like, that's kind of the not the, that's kind of the thing that made the book what it was because yeah. a lot of people will bring up the whole idea of going into that manifestation of evils like when they come back as adults why do they act the way they do what well, makes sense when the books are right. paralleled when they go back to when they go back to um dairy as adults they regress into their childlike mindset that's yeah. why it terrifies them it's like they their dairy makes them forget and all of the memories of dairy are leaving you know all the memories of dairy come flooding back when they were come back as teenagers and they were uh, as adults and it regresses them back to their, their youthful selves mentally in a sense of why everything is terrifying again. But yeah, no, I just, I, I think that Christine was a, a perfect blending of Carpenter's aesthetic and King's story, yeah. which doesn't always happen. I think the, the best adaptations typically yeah. are when you have directors that are well-versed in the genre and also have a little bit of something to say. I mean, you know, from De Palma to, um, you know, even Toby Hooper, but Carpenter, definitely Cronenberg. um, Like the best King adaptations weren't just like, oh, we're adapting King. It's like, I'm taking King and putting my stamp on the versions of it. You know, because again, the opening title of this, it doesn't say Stephen King's Christine. It says John Carpenter's Christine. Right. You know, so that is something that I think is it is great. Um, the only other, which uh, is funny, because they both are very strong brands. Oh, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I I've got to hop off here, Austin. Um, but yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. Do, do want to uh, wrap up?
1: Um, we got yeah.
2: I, I no worries. I got
0: I got one one important question for you. Absolutely. If you find yourself being followed, you're just driving home. From a long day at work, you're just tired. You find yourself followed by a 1958 Red Plymouth Fury with her
2: brights on. Would you die? I'd probably stop the car and run somewhere else, but then again, that doesn't seem to matter.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. I was about to say, I think I think she catches up to you a little quicker. <laughs>
2: yeah, I don't think I don't think there's there there's uh there's no way to stop it. Because I mean, in essence, pristine is evil and evil always finds yeah. evil's always there and you know fa- the phantom of christine yeah. will, will continue on until it reaches it reaches its uh, ultimate goal and there's something eerie about being followed when you're driving
0: especially oh, at night. night
2: yeah 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 nope that is like one of the, the quintessential fears but yeah definitely goes goes into that uh our fear of the unknown and
1: those, yeah
2: of that and the elements of christine and the elements of um evil itself i love it i
0: so happy that you're able to do this with me i love talking about christine i could talk for another hour easy but i too have to hop off uh before i let you go though where can everybody find you in what what's coming up because i know you got a bunch of
2: films right yeah. now yep um well um i'm on instagram um jake from Topeka. um That's the best way to follow me Um, there. I post mainly about movies and films I'm working on films. I've directed, produced makeup effects that I've done. Um, We've got uh, currently I've got a short film. I directed called bedtime story that is going on the festival circuit. A couple of film festivals showing up is the Pittsburgh moving um, picture show. That's going to happen in Pittsburgh in October um, and one in Colorado Springs. Um, so there's a lot of that A couple of pr- films I produced or in a couple other film festivals. So lots of stuff. One's called Chloe's happy hour. One's called the last butterflies. And then we're getting ready to release another one that I was the producer on um, called the road demon, which I think um, those, those who are fans of Christine will greatly love. It's not at 19. It's not a Plymouth Fury, but we did make sure that the car in the movie was red. So, yes. Yeah. So, um, so that one be looking on the be on the outlook for that one if you guys want to follow along on Instagram because we'll be posting about it. We do have our we do have our poster up right now, and I think people get a kick out of it. Definitely a '80s throwback. Um, but yeah, so working on that. Got a couple other projects in the works. Um, in the next year, lots of stuff coming out in twenty uh, twenty four. So just be on the lookout if you guys want to follow along. And as always, Austin, absolutely love chatting with you about movies, monsters, film. You know, it's always a pleasure to come on your podcast and get a get a chat with you about, about just about everything, you know, not even not just the movies themselves, but the philosophy behind them um, and um, the things that drive us as filmmakers and as, um, you know, lovers of lovers of this genre.
0: Thank you so much for saying that. That oh, that was so well put. I love that. Thank you. And I love having you on. And uh, it's a, it's always one of those uh, whenever I get to book you on the show, I just know it's going to be a great time
2: yep me too i'm always i always look forward to it when you ask it's always great so all
0: righty man thank you so much i really appreciate it absolutely till next time till next time hopefully sooner rather than later <laughs> Absolutely. thank you for listening to today's episode thanks again to jake for joining me and for talking christine with me christine is a villain i've wanted to talk about since i started the podcast and i'm so happy it finally happened don't forget to follow Jake. His work is incredible. And while you're at it, please share and review this podcast. I've been working really hard to grow this little show. And while I'm saying I'm really pleased with the progress so far, I still need your guys' help. Sharing and reviewing pleases the algorithm gods. And if they're pleased, then more spooky friends will be able to find this show. Also, feel free to comment and stuff and let me know how I'm doing. Your input would make this the best podcast possible and, um, and if you've done all that already, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Love y'all. An announcement. Next week starts the annual Slashtober, Slashtober 2. And I have some very exciting guests and episodes lined up for the slashiest month of the year. Last year was dedicated entirely to our boy, Mikey MikeyMaiMai. So I'm going to be switching it up a little bit. But don't worry. I guarantee you it's uh, actually, you know, what? I'll, I'll just say what this theme is. It's everyone except for Michael. Yep. Uh, I got a lot of sla- I got a lot of episodes lined up. A lot of them are recorded already. I think it's going to be a great October. A reminder, I just became an affiliate for Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. I definitely recommend checking out their magazine and even subscribing. And if you decide to do that, don't forget to use the promo code WOULDYOUDIESHOW for 20% off your entire order. I almost forgot to mention, Ice Cream just played at the Hell's Half Mile Film and Music Festival in Bay City this past weekend, and it did really well. Um, it played at the State Theater, which was a beautiful venue, and I am thrilled that Ice Cream's going on a pretty, a pretty fun, a pretty successful film circuit for uh, how small of a film it is. It, it's doing pretty, pretty great things, and I'm very, I'm very proud of this film. I'll keep you guys updated on how Ice Cream is doing and when it'll finally be available to watch on on the internet available to the public so thank you you can find the show social media on twitter facebook and instagram at would you die show you can also follow me on tiktok at would you die podcast you can find the would you die youtube show on the three wise men media youtube channel where you can also find professional wrestling trailer reviews and much much more the music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend josie palmer next week slash tober two begins and to avoid the first slasher of the month You best not answer your phones. Until next time, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die.